So unions are a big part of modern business, the modern commercial world. They're not as large and as powerful as they once were. But unions still are important and have a big part in our world of commerce, in our business world. Um, and, they are, and there have been uh, many Jews that were involved in collective bargaining and unionization. Um, in fact, I had a, um, I discovered this some years ago, I was going through my grandmother's house and I opened kind of a hidden drawer in a desk and I found a box over there and I opened the box um, and it was a stack of papers together with a bunch of other things and I started flipping through the papers um, and I realized it belonged to my grandfather's uncle or my great-great-uncle whose name was Abraham Gordon and uh, he was a he was a shochet, a ritual slaughterer in New York and uh, he was uh, one of the heads of the Igud HaShochtim, the union of ritual slaughterers in New York and the papers, a lot of them had to do with um, their union um, so, uh, so that's my union history. So, uh, but unions are a fairly new phenomena in history. Um, they didn't exist throughout much of history, labor unions that is. Um, they only really began as a result of 19th century industrialization. As Europe, North America, other countries industrialized starting from the early 19th century, um, and as industrialization grew, uh, by the end of the 19th century, there were many, many factories in every major city of Europe and every throughout the United States. These most people were no longer working the farms by the end of the ninth, from the beginning of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century. The beginning of the 19th century, most people were agrarian, working farms. By the end of the 19th century, most people were laborers working in these factories. Now, these factories were, were today we call them sweatshops, were often um, 12 hour, workers work 12-hour days, six days a week, um, in these very brutal conditions. Um, they did not get breaks, lunch breaks, or if they did, they were very, very short. Um, they often, you know, did not, they were locked inside often where they couldn't even leave if they wanted to. Um, often in, ha in hazardous air that was not healthy for them with hazardous um, tools without protections for their safety. And there were many, many problems in these factories. These workers had no recourse. They had no other options because um, they needed a job, they needed to work, they needed to support their families. This was the only way to work. It was hard to be then to open your own business. It was fairly difficult. Um, people that had their own businesses, um, really small businesses, really, really struggled back then. It was very, very difficult. Um, and, um, you know, far, people didn't have farms anymore. So uh, they didn't have too many options. They worked in these factories. They didn't have many skills. Um, most of these workers were unskilled, um, or their skills were fairly easy to acquire. And so if you didn't do the job, then you find somebody else to do the job. Um, so as a result, the workers who had no other options, beginning in the late 19th century, started to organize so that they could collectively bargain for better working conditions, for better wages, for better, um, better working hours. Uh, it created a movement, of um, a social movement, of um, advocates, 
together with politicians who supported it, together with theorists who theorized behind it um, to help improve working conditions of the millions and millions, tens of millions of working class poor um, that were um, throughout the United States, throughout Europe, throughout many, many other countries. Um, over time, these um, movements gained political power, gained power in their own factories, gained political power um, in states and countries, and uh, were able to also advocate for laws to support their ability to better labor laws in general, to support their ability to organize. Um, at the height of the unions in the 1950s, about a third of all American workers were unionized. Today, unions are significantly less popular. They've declined for a number of reasons. Firstly, there has been increased competition, both due to globalization, so competition from other countries, as well as it's become much, much easier today to build a business and factory than it was a century ago, um, much cheaper and easier. Um, so there's a lot more competition. There are also better workers' rights that are get granted by the federal government, by state governments. So unions are less necessary. In other words, the conditions to start with are nowhere near as bad as what they used to be, um, are much, much better. And we have recourse in labor courts, um, and we have recourse in the courts to sue your employers. There's a lot more options. Um, and finally, um, there's been a huge movement to high-skilled labor. Most workers in the United States no longer work low-skilled um, what they call blue-collar work. Um, the vast majority of, they're still a significant minority, but the majority of, firstly, even most blue-collar workers or labor workers are working in higher-skilled work that requires some level of development of skill and training. Um, and definitely, and most workers are working what's called white-collar or um, service jobs that also require even higher-level training, which means it's very much harder for um, employers to just swap out employees at will, giving employees a lot more, um, giving employ employees um, a lot more um, leverage. And uh, most employees today, rather than focused on improving their working conditions, because they expect back then they expected to use to work in the same job, essentially, in the same position for their entire lifetime. Today, most employees don't expect to work in the same job and same position for their whole lifetime. Rather, most employees expect to advance in careers because they're in a service industry with this room and or higher skilled industries with this room for advancement. And with that expectation of advancement, rather than focusing on improving your current conditions, the focus is usually on in building your career. So for all those reasons, unions have significantly declined in recent decades, but they're still a very strong force, especially public union employees. Um, a very significant majority of public employees are unionized still today. Um, and so there are still many unions. And the union debates and questions about union rights and bargaining still come up um, periodically and fairly regularly. And so the question I want to address today is, what does Jewish law say about unionizing, joining together collective rights, striking, which is the most powerful leverage that unions have, to walk out on the job, essentially destroy the, um, inc the, f the production of their factory, and workers' rights in general. But they have, like in hospitals, they have like 
Nurses have a union, yes. And uh, the Welsh have a union. There are many, many unions. Okay, but in England it's very big. In, in, in England it's big, that. yes. Right. Yes, they have probably stronger labor laws. And, and the, the, another factor in the loss of unions have to do with labor laws making it more difficult to organize or more difficult to force organization. Um, and other states that have more favorable union laws will generally have more union members. You had a question? No. Okay. So in Jewish law, in Jewish values, both an employer and an employee have responsibilities to each other. <coughs> the Talmud tells us that an employee is obligated to give their very best effort to their work. And we learn this from the first employee described in the Torah, Jacob. Our forefather Jacob worked for his father-in-law Laban. His father-in-law Laban was a crook and tried to harm him and cheated from him many times. And yet, in their parting words, Jacob describes to Laban how he worked for him. And he said, he's, and he tells his father-in-law that I worked, or he tells his wives, I worked for my employer, my father-in-law, with all of my energy. He gave all of his energy to his work. He also says, I did not sleep adequately because I worked long hours. So he worked full time. And he also, and our sages say that, um, and he also was uh, faced a lot of discomfort. He says, um, In the day I faced the heat, in the night I faced the cold, and I still worked. So an employee has to be prepared, prepared to face a decent amount of discomfort and even pain to get their job done when necessary. Um, and furthermore, an employee who is a time on time, who, who who's on the clock, must not waste any time within reason. Um, they cannot waste any time because any time they're on their employer's time and time wasted is stolen time. Essentially, their employer, their employer is paying them to work that time. If they waste the time um, doing something personal that they were not supposed to be doing during that time, um, it's wasted time. They don't have the right to do that. They must work for their employer full time. Um, now, within reason, of course. I mean, people need breaks, and today we have legislated breaks that are required, especially in California. Um, but, um, but a person needs to give all their time to their employer. In the same way, an employer also has significant responsibilities to the employee. Firstly, it is the employer's responsibility not just if you have a full-time employee, that is, not just to pay your employee for their work, but it is an employee's responsibility, employer's responsibility to ensure that the employee is earning a living wage, a wage that they can live on. Not only do they have to make sure they are living, earning a living wage, they have to make for themselves, they have to, if they have a family, a wife and children, or spouse and children, they have to make sure that it's a living wage for their family. It's the employer's responsibility. They also can never stop an employee from quitting or going to work for someone else. 
that is requiring an employee to stay and not allowing them to leave is slavery. That is the def legal definition of slavery, where you don't let someone leave the job. They can let an employee leave at any time. They also cannot ban the employee from going to work for someone else. Just last week, the president spoke about it, about banning non-compete agreements. Um, I think California already has laws against it. Um, but the non-compete agreements where you say, after you leave me, you can't go work for somebody else, limits your employee's abilities. Um, and that is forbidden. Um, the employer doesn't own the employee. Um, and so unless they have secrets that they cannot share, that they discovered, you know, kind of they cannot steal company secrets and move it on to the next job, that's of course um, unacceptable. While an employee can quit at any time, they do of course have to give reasonable notice where they don't cause undue harm to the employee. Clearly a crane operator cannot walk off the job in the middle of the day. That would be simply irresponsible. If you're part of a team, you cannot quit the night before when the rest of the team cannot work without you. Um, you need to give reasonable notice, but with reasonable notice, you can leave at any time. Yes, Lewis. So the president just spoke last week about banning that um, across the country. Um, some states already have laws against that. But then you're going into being a Marxist if you refuse to accept that this is an acceptable practice between an employer and an employee. It's acceptable because employees did not have a choice but to sign these agreements in many industries. But it is highly problematic ethically and under Jewish law because it's essentially the employer is enslaving the employee. Um, in, in other words, any, if you don't allow the employee freedom outside of the job to do what they want um, in ways that don't directly impact their current job, then that's enslaving them. But what's the source of it? The source is that employees, especially if they're involved in you know, different contracts that uh, could so there's a different issue. There's a different issue when it comes to employees that have certain company secrets. They cannot then go on to the next company and share company secrets. Or somebody in sales who has clients, they cannot move their clients over to another company. That, that's, that's a fair demand. But you cannot ban someone from working. The reason why companies did it is they don't want other companies to essentially entice their employees to leave and go work for the competition. Um, that is, if the only way the company could stop the employee from leaving, um, if they cannot just blanketly stop the employee from leaving, what they need to do is, if the, you get a better job from the competition, then they have to match that. They have to offer you even better, right? Um, in other words, it places the employee at a disadvantage. Um, that's why the president suggested to ban it. Jewish law has a problem with it because it is a certain, sorry? He didn't ban it. He mentioned last week in a speech that he would, he wants to ban it. 
non-compete agreements, where you sign a, an agreement that you're not going to go work for someone else when you leave this job? Okay, but most, but this is, but ma many jobs have non-computer. Yeah. Well, that's a different issue that I just mentioned. Yes, let's move on. So, so furthermore, um, when an employee is laid off, um, an employer must give them severance pay. The Torah does not give us an amount of how much that severance pay must be. Um, we do have a tradition on the amounts for the severance pay. I'm not going to get into it now. But again, these are requirements from employers to employees and employees to employers. It goes both ways. Both have responsibilities to each other. What I want to address today is um, what if employees don't feel that they are getting everything they need or they deserve and they don't want to quit, but they just want better uh, conditions? Can they organize? Do they have the right to organize? Um, and then as a collective union, then try to bargain with the employer. They have a lot more leverage when they are all um, facing the employer together. So whenever we look at Jewish law, we always, so to be clear, um, unions, labor unions, are a late 19th century development. For most of history, they didn't exist. If we want to find what Jewish law says, we go back to the source of our oral tradition. The primary source is always the Talmud and other Talmudic era works. And so we have to see what they say about these rules. So the Talmud and Talmudic era works do not discuss anywhere um, labor unions, understandably, because they simply didn't exist. But before there were labor unions, there were trade unions. Trade unions are essentially not groups of employees within a particular business, but trade unions are um, particular professionals or trade experts that would unionize in order to make usually rules for the trade, in order to make standards, to regulate the particular trade, um, and sometimes also to control competition and, um, or unfair competition. And so the Tosefta, which is in addition to um, a book written right after the Mishnah, written about 20, about um, 1,800 years ago, 1700 years ago, um, in the book of Bav Metziah, chapter 11, discusses trade unions. It mentions various trade unions, wool spinners, wool dyers, the baker's union, the donkey riders union, sailors union. Um, these were various guilds or trade unions that were able to band together and make rules for the trade. Once they make rules, those rules must be followed by all members of the trade union. Failure, failure to follow the rules can result in agreed upon penalties. So if they have standard rules for the trade union and people don't agree, um, an example given in the Brisa over there in the Tosefta is um, the sailors union had an agreement that if someone lost, if a, sail, if a, a ship owners lost their ships, then the other owners would essentially reimburse them. It was an insurance system where all the various um, boat owners would, would 
insure each other, um, and that way they were able to spread the risk of losing your boat at sea collectively. That was one example of what the trade unions did, of what the sailors' union did. Um, they were able to unionize, they were able to organize, they were also even able to create penalties for people who did not follow the proper rules. Um, if you took your ship to a place you're not supposed to take it, unsafe places, then you don't get insured, for example. The Ramban Reb Moshe ben Nachman, one of our great um, halachic uh, leaders and sages, he lived in the 1200s, um, he explains that this right to unionize is really similar to the right to organize a government. We think about government, we take government at face value, but what right does the government have to tell me what to do? Right? There's a whole movement, I forget what they're called, in this country of people who are anti-government. What right does the government have to tell me what to do? And that's a valid question. What right does the government have to tell you what to do? So a government is actually a unique form of partnership. People can partner together, you know, and create a partnership that the members that voluntarily partner together are bound by. In the same way, people can, within a certain geographic area, can and really should in order to create law and order, in order to share responsibilities, should band together to create a government. Um, we could create different levels of government in order to um, essentially legislate, create order, create safety, create um, you know, unified infrastructure, roads, transportation, um, energy, um, water supplies, uh, whatever else we need. We should band together in order and create a group. And that's essentially what the government is. It is a form of partnership where we partner together to create a, um, uh, we partner together to create rules um, for everyone and create a system for everyone. Um, a government like a partnership works based on majority. In partnership, whoever works, whoever has the majority share um, or majority voters have ultimate um, control. And the same would also be in any government would work the same way. It would be at its core based on a majority rule system. And uh, that's what Jews had really throughout their history. Um, we had governments in each kehila. In each community that we were, we had these, um, vo you know, voluntarily created governments that the, that the Jewish communities created, that those governments, once in force, um, were ruled by the majority. So, and this is essentially any group, and the, the Mishnah tells us that any group can, band to, can um, get together and create a form of government. Even if you have a higher form of government, you could create a lower form of government, a homeowners association, a group of people on a street on a cul-de-sac, a dead-end street, in a neighborhood, can organize together and create rules based on majority vote. Um, essentially, any group of homes can join together in a you know, distinct geographic area, can join together and create a homeowners association. So in the same way, says Ramosha ben Nachman, the Ramban, um, a group that shares a trade, they're not geographically connected, or exclusive, only geographically connected, they're connected by their particular trade, they also can create their own association and form of government. And then the majority must, uh, can then impose rules on the minority within that particular group.
So in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, when labor unions became popular um, and labor unions grew um, throughout the developed world, throughout the um, industrialized world, um, Jewish scholars were asked the question about what does Jewish law say? Can we, should we band together to create, should we organize and create a union? So a number of halachic experts at the time worked, um, dealt with this. Um, one of the most notable was Ramosha Feinstein, um, who was a, um, probably the most prominent halachic Jewish legal expert in the United States in the 20th century. Um, and they argued that tr if trade unions are okay in Jewish law, and any trade can get together and create a trade union, then by extension, any group of workers within a particular location can also get together within a particular factory or working for a particular business can also get together. So long as you have a unified cause of government, in other words, a unified cause that band brings you together, you can create a form of government that will govern that particular thing that unites you. If it's your workplace, then that you can form, form your own government, um, your own community to um, control how you work in your workplace. If it's your trade, it's your trade. It's your, your, where you own your home or where you, your residence is, your geographic residence, you can create, um, you, you would be able to create a union as well. So they argued that um, labor unions have the right, or workers have the right to voluntarily organize into a group in order to negotiate with employers and make rules. Now, does that mean any workers could unionize? Could any workers unionize? Or if, let's say, a handful of workers in a company decide to join together in a group, is that a valid union? Can, um, can the company refuse to talk to them? Or should they be obligated to talk to them as a representative of the workers? Sir Moshe Feinstein delves with this country and with this question, and he points out that when it comes to the govern normal government, right? City government, homeowners government, association government, right? Any form of government, you need majority of the people in a particular area to vote, to create, to organize, to create the government. If most people are uninterested in creating the government, the government has no, you cannot create a government of just a handful of people. The same would be presumably in a trade union. A trade union, you would need most people in that particular town or region involved in that particular trade to join together in order to create a trade union. The same thing would work also with a labor union. You would need majority of workers in a particular factory or in a particular company to join together in order to create a labor union. If most of the workers are not interested, you can't have a minority creating a union. They must be a majority in order to really be representative of the group. So they would have to be a majority. Once, let's say they, the unions do vote, the workers in the factory do vote, and majority decide that they do want to create a union. They want to join together, they want to organize, they want to create their own essential form of government. So now, can they then force all of the employees within the factory to join their union? Or can employees say, very good, most of you want to join, but I'm not going to be part of it. So this is actually a question that arose 
many, many years ago, uh, with regard to tr before they had labor unions, with regard to trade unions. Trade unions, <coughs> if all the butchers in town, or all the bakers in town, or all the tanners, or whatever other business they're doing in town, all the tailors, want to join together and create a union. Majority of them, they vote, and most of them vote, they want to create a union. And one tailor says, I don't want to be part of your union. I don't want to pay the dues required. I don't want to be responsible to follow your rules. I don't want to be part of their union. Are they responsible to be part of it? So early postgame dealt with this question. And they point out that if you look at the Tosefta, the source work that speaks of trade unions, the term it says is that it goes to, discusses various unions and various details, um, but it says the various groups that are mentioned, the weavers and the spinners and the, um, and the dyers and, uh, and these various, and the uh, donkey drivers and these various, the bakers that all these groups mentioned, said they are allowed to join together as a union, as a, as a trade group. It doesn't say that they can force each other to join together as a trade group. It says they are allowed to. So based on that wording, presumably it is only a voluntary thing. It is not required. And in this sense, in this sense, trade unions are different from governments. Because when it comes to a homeowners association, once, or a town for that matter, that decides to incorporate as a government, as a, as a town and, be, and have its own government. When you decide to join together in government, once majority of people in a particular geographic area decide to join together as a single government, the minority is living in the town is forced to be part of that government. You cannot say, I live in this city, but I don't want to be a resident of the city. I'm going to be a resident, an independent resident. You don't have the right to do that. Um, once a majority join together in a geographical, geographic location for a government of a city or a homeowners association, you don't have the right to walk away from it and to refuse to be part of it. However, when it comes to unions, based on the wording of the Tosefta, it implies, and Postkim have pointed this out, that you cannot force other members of the trade or other practitioners of the trade to join the union if they refuse not, if they refuse to. Even members of the union then also have the right to quit the union at any time. And so Postkim therefore, um, Postkim therefore ruled that, well, if they have the right to, um, if, if trade unions don't have the right to force everyone in the trade to join, they can only create it if a majority agree to create it. Then they're representing the trade. But if they cannot force the minority to join, the same presumably would be in a labor union, which is really just a, another form of trade union from a Jewish perspective, from a halachic perspective. A labor union also cannot force those who do not want to join, cannot be forced to join. Once someone does join, though, then they are required to follow the rules. 
So if they are a member, they are required to follow the rules, and the union can apply sanctions against members who refuse to follow the rules. So if a union member doesn't follow the rule, then definitely the union can punish them based on agreed upon whatever the union's rules are and laws are. They're allowed to punish the members for not following rules. Um, but they can only do that for union members. They cannot do it for non-members. Now, what they can do, though, is what if non-members of the union harm the union? Maybe they cause harm. Maybe their lack of participation in the rules not only you know, is outside of the union rules, they've broken the rules, but they've financially harmed the union. So Ramosha Feinstein says, well, if they have done something, and earlier posts can deal with this already with trade unions, if they did something that harmed the business of others unfairly, Right? Say the union has certain non-compete rules in order to make it easier for the members of the, of the union, and somebody went and undercut all the union members by lowering prices well beyond, below what is reasonable and what the union would normally allow. They've harmed, financially harmed everybody else. Um, then members of the union, like anyone, if any, just like an individual can sue someone who tried to undercut their business, the union themselves can sue individuals, non-members, who work to undercut their business. Any questions? Tosefta, Tosefta. I will get to that. I will get to that. Yes. So the most common tool, I'm going to come back to this. I just want to address something else first that make it easier. So the most common tool and the strongest tool used by the unions, the greatest leverage that unions have against employers is strikes. Because essentially, there's no reason the employers should listen to the employees unless they could shut down the business, unless they could cause the employers, the business owners, significant harm. By shutting down production of the factory, or by not working in whatever the work they're supposed to be doing collectively as a group where the employer does not have the ability to easily go and hire others, um, and especially if they could be part of a larger union of people similar in their trade, where now there's really no one the employer can hire, um, it, it creates a huge amount of leverage on these unions, on the, uh, of, uh, for these unions, to allow them to... Um, Pressure to pressure the employers to give in to their demands. Um, so the question is, does the Torah's ethics allow for strikes? Is that ethical to strike? So generally, we mentioned earlier, a worker has the right to quit at any time. Not allowing a worker to quit would be a form of slavery. Any worker has the right to quit at any time, so long as they give enough reasonable notice not to cause harm to the employer. So you can't quit when, by me leaving and you not having someone to replace me tomorrow, because there's no way you're going to find a replacement by tomorrow, you're going to lose whatever amount of money. Um, and so, especially if someone's part of a team or other work won't be done as a result, if it's going to cause harm, then definitely the employer can stop them or sue them, uh, sue the employee for quitting without notice. 
But if they give reasonable notice, um, then they definitely, any employer, employee can quit at any time. However, clearly, while an individual worker can quit without causing much harm, a strike where the entire workforce quits together in an organized way is clearly intended to maximize the harm to the employers. Right? So it's clearly intended to cause harm and to maximize the harm. And so therefore, generally, right, it would be problematic. But can they do it? Can they quit in order to um, get the employer to give in to their demands? So the Talmud in Bava Basra um, 9a tells of a butcher's union in Babylonia, in Babylon, that had agreed that instead of each butcher competing with each other, what they would do is each butcher would slaughter an animal one day a week. And presumably these were big cows. They would slaughter one day a week. It'd take time to um, you know, sell your whole cow, lots in it. So each butcher was able to only slaughter an animal one day a week. And that way, they wouldn't all be competing with each other. They would not all be selling on the same day. Meat doesn't last for very long without refrigeration. Today we have refrigeration, and they didn't. It lasts for a day or two. You've got to sell it all within a day or two. And so each butcher in town had a different day of the week that they would be able to work in their butcher, slaughter and sell the meat. One butcher, member of the union, broke the rules. And he slaughtered an animal and sold meat on a day that he was not supposed to sell the meat. As a punishment to this butcher, there was a pre-agreed upon punishment. They destroyed the hides from the animal. The hides are very expensive, right? Very valuable. Um, and the agreement had been that anyone who breaks these rules, their hides would be destroyed. The hides from the animal that they slaughtered incorrectly. The skin, the skin from the animal was destroyed, causing a significant loss. So this fellow, this, this fellow, this rebellious butcher, rebel butcher, he sued the other butcher, very upset that his hides were destroyed. He sued the butchers in court, in the court led by the great sage Rava. So Rava ruled that the butchers were wrong in destroying this poor fellow's hides, and they must pay for his hide. They caused damage, they must pay for the damage they caused. Why? They had made an agreement and he had not followed the agreement. And so the rabbi says, because their agreement that they made was not done with his consent. Since their agreement was not with his consent, therefore they are not allowed, therefore the agreement that was invalid and they were not allowed to destroy his hides, they have to pay for it. Why would they need his consent? If they are their own self-governing group, trade union, they could make their own rules. Why would they need Rava, who is the president or the leader of the Beth Din, of the local Jewish court, the local chief rabbi, why would they need the rabbi's consent? So the various commentaries explain, the Mukha Yosef um, is one commentary that explains that Unions as self-sufficient governments have the right to make rules with majority approval that impact their own group. However, they have no right to make or enforce rules that impact people outside of their group. 
If it's going to have a negative impact on anyone who is not a member, they're not allowed to make a rule because they're harming others. The rule that these butchers made in this instance was a non-compete rule where the butchers, each butcher would settle on a different day. The problem with non-compete rules is it's a monopoly. They created a monopoly. Now, there are certain instances where monopolies are acceptable. They're the, the greater good, we need monopolies. We have certain monopolies in our own world today. Um, certain monopolies that are government, even government sanctioned. Um, uh, we have, um, you know, such as, you know, water and power and certain things that are understandably a best function as monopolies. Major but League Major League Baseball. But, and one can argue whether they're good or not. But you don't have the right to create a monopoly which harms the public without the sanction of the local rabbi or the local government. You don't have the right. Since they created a monopoly, their monopoly was invalid, and therefore they're destroying their, this fellow's hides in order, to, um, in order to enforce their monopoly was unwarranted destruction, and therefore they need to pay for it. So, what we learn from this is that if a union makes rules that don't just impact themselves but impact other people, they don't have the right to do it without the consent of others. And so therefore, um, Rav Moshe Feinstein, when he was asked this question, he ruled that for a union to strike, um, for, better, for better bargaining, you know, for better bargaining leverage um, in a contract, for example. Um, if a union wanted to strike, they wouldn't be able to just strike because that would be a violation of an existing contract that they have as employees. Now, today a lot of unions create limited contracts. They'll create a five-year contract. The contract is up at the end of five years, and then they can walk off the job after five years. You have no contract with them. Um, and that would, of course, would not fall under this category. But if you do have a long-term contract, that you are working for someone long-term, um, you don't have the right to just walk off the job in a way that's going to harm the employer um, under Jewish law without the approval of the community of the local government, or in Jewish community, it would be the local Bethden, the local court, um, because you're harming others. You don't have the right to unfairly harm others. Now, today also, contracts, in addition to being limited in scope, in time, they also very often include the right to strike within the contract, within union contracts. If it includes the right to strike, then of course that's their legal right. But if it's not explicitly allowed in the contract, and it's not the end when their contract is not up, they would need some sort of outside regulatory approval to approve the strike. Um, even further, if the shutting the business harms others beyond their own employers, such as the trucking industry decides to strike, it doesn't just harm the truck owners or the um, the logistics companies, it harms everybody, consumers, right, who don't get what they want. If the port workers decide to strike, the longshoremen, right, it harms everybody. So groups that harm everybody would need then public um, approval in order to be able to strike. Um, Rav, um, Rav Moshe Feinstein felt that 
Today, when we have laws allowing strikes in many industries, as a, and it's a common bargaining tool, we essentially, our government has legally allowed strikes um, for many industries, not all industries. Longshoremen and other public groups that are necessary um, do sometimes need government approval in order to strike. They cannot just strike on their own. And just a few weeks ago, our um, railroad workers wanted to strike, and Congress blocked them from striking. Um, and Congress was able to stop them striking um, because any legally uh, there are certain groups that are banned from striking because of public harm. Now there are some groups that should never be striking no matter what because the damage is too great and this should be very clear. Employees who save lives such as doctors, nurses, police, firefighters, lifeguards should never be allowed to strike. Um, in this state we have laws banning all those groups from striking. Um, Another example discussed by Rabbi Feinstein is um, teachers. Teachers should never be allowed to strike because they cause harm to children. Some states, the state of New York, for example, have bans on public school teachers. I think New York has on all public employees from striking. Our federal government has a ban on all federal government employees striking. Um, we in California do not have a ban, unfortunately, on teachers striking. That's a big problem. But ethically, it's unethical from a Jewish perspective for teachers to ever strike because why should the children suffer? There is no scenario in which a government would allow the teachers to strike because the children would suffer as a result. One other big union issue that has come up, and um, someone brought it up earlier, is the debate over closed shop or right versus right to work. <coughs> Essentially, in many states, like in California, a union has the right to sign a contract with their employers requiring them to only hire union workers, effectively forcing all workers to join the union. So we agree, it's, it's, a, it's a contract that the employers agreed with to the unions that they will only hire union workers. And so, sorry? Is that discrimination? Well, it's in a sense a voluntary contract. The union representing the employees signed a voluntary contract with the employer. They both agreed to it that they will only employ, hire union workers. Now, the union had some leverage to get the employers to sign that contract. Clearly, they would not have done that, right, had the unions not used leverage. But you have the right to use leverage and contact, contract reasonable leverage, a legal leverage in contract negotiation. And it was an agreed-upon contract by both sides. So in California, such contracts are legal and binding. Many states, in fact, I believe it's a majority of states now in this country, are, have what's called right-to-work laws. Essentially, they ban such clauses where an, a even if the employer and the union agree on a contract that will ban non-union workers, such a, such a contract is banned. Clearly, closed shop agreements harm other workers who would like to work without paying union dues, right? So clearly, this is an agreement that harms a third party. While all people have the right to enter into binding agreements, partnerships, um, sales, contracts of any sort you want with very little, ex um, very little exceptions. You essentially can choose to make any contract you want, almost any contract you want in life. That is only so long as you, the people who are signing it are the people who are impacted. Uh, 
But as soon as it starts impacting other people who are not party to the contract, it becomes unethical. You cannot sign a contract that will harm other people, right? That's why monopolies are wrong, right? Because you're signing contracts. Um, if, you, uh, um, if you sign contracts or agreements that harm, you conspire to harm other people, right? The problem with a clause that bans non-due-paying members, uh, employees, essentially harms other people. It harms people that would like to work but don't want to pay the dues to the employee, to the unions, for whatever reason. So it harms third parties. Um, again, a government representing all the people in the state or in the city or in the country have the right to allow such clauses, deciding that it's, such clauses are okay for the overall good of the employees. Um, but without such explicit allowing, it would be considered unethical kind of on its face to create um, contracts that ban other people or that include other people. So what we've seen, I think, from this is, well, Torah definitely allows unions and allows organization. Um, the Torah also, as we've seen, has very strong um, responsibilities, both on the employees to take care of employer, employees to work for their employers faithfully and consistently and give it everything they have. And uh, the employers have a responsibility to take care of their employees. One of the issues that, um, one of the major issues that or, uh, labor organization has raised is, um, and some of these very issues like closed shop um, or strikes or other issues raise is the, uh, that sometimes what's good for one person or often what's good for one person is not good for others. What's good for a group is often not good for the individual. And what often happens in society is society goes to one end or another. In other words, either a society becomes extremely individualistic where each person is for themselves and everyone can do essentially whatever they want. And what happens then when you have a highly individualistic society, certain people gain power and uh, you essentially end up creating an oligarchy where you have a handful of people with power and other people who essentially have no power because everyone can do whatever they want. The people who figured out how to game the system or the people who maybe became successful due to their hard work and good, you know, smart investments, whatever it may be, then have the power to do whatever they want and then other people suffer as a result in a highly individualistic system. The other, more socialist system, would look at the good of the public. What's best for everyone? What's best for the entire group? The problem is that sometimes what's best for everyone can be very harmful for individuals and doesn't work for individuals in a very socialist system if it goes too far. So our Torah um, allows for government but always looks out for the individual. And it really takes a very, very balanced approach. And it's important to always remember <clears throat> that we need to find a healthy balance between the needs of the individual and the needs of the public even when an individual's needs need to be sacrificed for the public, and sometimes that happens, even then don't forget about the individual. They still need to be taken care of. You still need to make sure that nobody gets hurt. If somebody does get hurt, there are situations where there's no way around it, um, you must still try to help them in every way possible. Um, society 
um, especially um, uh, finance, commerce, um, is always going to have winners and losers. Um, that's the nature of human commerce. That's the nature of human society. Some people will succeed. Some people will fail. Some people will do well. Some people will not. Some people will have skills that are needed. Some people's skills are no longer needed, right? Some people's investments are successful. Some people's investments are not. Everything, there will always be ups and downs, haves and have nots in a healthy, structured society. However, it's important to always remember that while on the one hand we need to create be concerned for the general good, we also at the same time need to be concerned for the individual's needs. And while we need to be concerned for the individual's needs, at the same time we also need to be concerned for the general good. And we need to find that healthy balance between the two. Um, ultimately we say in Proverbs, The ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness, and all of its paths are peace. And if we look at the Torah to find guidelines for these kind of very contentious issues, like labor unions or labor laws, um, some of which have been very, very contentious and um, you know, with strong views on all sides. And a lot of people who have those views have strong, um, uh, have strong personal interests, right? It's very common for people to have um, personal interests. Um, I was surprised when I discovered in one of the local high schools that the, um, the union leader in the high school was also the head of the Republican club. I said, how can you do that? How can you be the head of the Republican club and the union leader? He says, but he, so he told me, my politics ends where my paycheck begins. So, uh, but, you know, everyone has a stake. Um, and uh, everyone has a, um, you know, everyone has personal needs and personal wants. But it's very important to not only think about oneself, but think about the collective good. And not just the collective good, but the needs of each and every individual. And balance them all together. And that is the Torah's rules. And I really believe that as we study and analyze the Torah's rules that we've done today, for various commerce and financial and interpersonal laws will really see the beauty of the Torah's ways and the uh, things that I think everybody can appreciate and we can even advocate for within our own society. We can explain to people, they will understand it, they will appreciate it, value it, and ultimately maybe we can have a society that moves closer and closer to the Torah's kind of perspective.